Hello, and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I'm Duran. I'm Nick. I'm Joe. I'm Shelby. I'm, I'm Rhett. Oh, God. And um, today we have all gathered together in the great um, reemergence of our, of our beautiful podcast and discussing Paul Schrader's new film, The Card Counter. But first, Rhett, do you have a few words? Wait, I'm doing the synopsis? No, you want to plug something. Oh. Oh, right. I thought I would do that at the end. My bad. Uh, I have a review coming out for this in my uh, in my college's uh, newspaper, The Emery Wheel. Uh, it's not up yet. It'll be up soon, depending on uh, how the editing process goes, but you can go check it out on our website. Or if you're anywhere near Emory campus, you can pick up the print edition uh, whenever it publishes, if it's in the print edition. Yeah, thank you. Do that. Um, and first, before we get into the uh, discussion, I'm just going to give a brief synopsis of the film. The Card Counter stars Isaac, uh, Oscar, Oscar <laughs> Isaac, um, presented by Martin Scorsese, the director of the movie. Um, he, he plays this guy called William Tell. He is a, a veteran who committed horrible acts at um, Abu Ghraib. And um, he, spends, he spends his life he spends his life going from town to town gambling until he meets a beautiful young man named Ty Sheridan and his life changes. Nick, we'd like to start us off. You have no idea what his actual character's name was, do you? No. <laughs> it was Kirk with a C. Kirk with a C, bro. <laughs> Come uh, on. And, right. and then we, we can't we can't forget Tiffany Haddish's La Linda and the the epic Willem Dafoe on screen for like five seconds. John Gordo. Gordo. John Gordo. I thought that was so funny because Gordo means fat in Spanish. Yeah. I was like what? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I don't even know where to begin with this. I still don't know after seeing this on Friday. It's now Wednesday. Um, it's uh it's a great great movie uh it's a lot to take in um very very schrader if you've ever seen a schrader film um i uh i was personally uh very uh awestruck by the cinematography i think was probably top of my list of like things that uh stood out to me in this film i was the whole story is just kind of captivating and Pulls you right in. Uh, Oscar Isaac, obviously a gem. I love that man to death. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I loved it. Does anybody else want to... Yeah, I think that um, casting Oscar Isaac in this role was, was really smart because um, this is, like, probably the least forgivable Paul Schrader protagonist. I mean, we, we've seen we've seen a, a few bad people in, in his films beforehand, but none that have, uh, you know, like tortured and killed people for like no reason um so i think that casting oscar here was good because he's like a a smart cute little man and you kind of oh. like um get a get a uh you have some sympathy for him um and i, I also think that it's the uh I, I agree i think it's the best shot movie of the year um i think the um the aspect ratio that, that was used it was it like 1.66 um it really emphasizes like the uh, the isolation of the main character, um, and a lot of I think a lot of it is um, shot like uh, the, the the camera is like centered 
on on a character and um i remember there's like a few shots at the beginning of the movie where um a lot of the characters uh take up like the full screen so it's like a, a lot of like full shots um which kind of give like a sense of like confinement but but like later in the film it kind of like breaks from this from this confinement um one of my favorite scenes of the movie is when tiffany haddish's character and uh, oscar Isaac's character go to uh this light show and the care the camera kind of takes like this free-flowing motion in that which i thought was really really interesting um because it it kind of like breaks free from the uh strict kind of tripod still camera stuff from from before um so it's like uh it has a lot of the cinematography is, is very similar to first reformed although it's um it kind of like breaks out of that um whereas first reformed never really does um, I, I definitely agree. I love the, the casting of uh, Oscar Isaac. And I was actually surprised by that because I think a lot of the, the character very intentionally, you know, seems very methodical, very reserved, very kind of like, you know, he, he doesn't want to express a lot because he knows that if he expresses himself, like bad things will happen. And so you, you almost get the sense, like when you start watching it, that it's like, huh, you know, Oscar doesn't, you know, he's very intentional, of course, but it doesn't feel like he was given a lot to do. And it almost belies, like, how much, you know, talent he has as an actor. But then there are some very, like, key scenes where you see, like, oh, no, yeah, they, they, they are being very intentional about where and, they, where, and where, where they are not, you know, letting Oscar really express more range, which I think was a very smart choice in that respect. As for the cinematography, I, I, I really liked it too. I liked how kind of, um, you know, naturalistic and, and not like drawing attention to itself, a, a lot of it was. So that, you know, when there are very simple movements, like a simple, like very slow push in on Oscar um, or, you know, the fish islands, which I'm sure we'll talk about that scene in detail later. Um, but, you know, a very extreme fisheye lens. Everything about the, the times where Schrader, you know, decides to do something that is more sort of showy, it feels very earned, but it also, you know, doesn't need to be huge to feel impactful, which I think is works a lot with the themes of confinement in this movie. I'm interested into, as to how you guys think that neon scene was earned because to me that was just like super showy i I kind, of, I kind of agree with that i i was almost like a little bit like hmm i i think that's a good way of phrasing it is like i wasn't sure how earned that was i think it fit um and i enjoyed it like i liked how sort of free flowy the camera was but i think you're right i, I i'm not sure how earned it was I think to understand that scene, you have to also kind of consider the ending of the movie, which I think is um, pretty pretty complex. So a lot of um, Schrader protagonists seem to have, like, uh, they, they either, like, earn redemption or they don't earn redemption. Um, sometimes it's, like, in the middle, like, in First Reformed. You're not, you're not sure exactly what happens there at the ending. But but here it's, um, it's pretty clear by, by the end of this movie that, you know, Oscar Isaac went through the path of violence, killing Willem Dafoe. And, like, for, I thought, like, the movie was just going to end there um, in that act of violence. But, but it ends with, um, like, 
Tiffany Haddish's character and Oscar Isaac like coming together at the end, which I thought was was really interesting, because it it almost seems like there's a little bit a little bit more there. So I think to understand like the light show scene, um, it's definitely like a break from the um, very uh, still kind of like spiritual style that Paul Schrader experimented with in First Reformed. Uh, in First Reformed, he said that um, a lot of the cinematography in that movie was intentionally very very reserved, and I think a lot of that did transfer here but there's like some moments of this movie which kind of like uh break from that um to like uh a certain i don't know to me very very profound effects well and i think it works with with tiffany haddish's character i kind of wish she got to perform a little bit more but overall i don't have like any sort of i felt like every character was used exactly the amount they should be for the sake of the film regardless of whether I would want to see the actor just performing more. But I really love the the costume design in this movie, especially in contrast between Tiffany Haddish's character and Oscar Isaac's character. You know, Oscar was always in a very slight variation on the same sort of gray and black outfit to kind of express how both isolated and also, you know, how much he cares about repetition and sort of staying in a routine you know, he, he talks a lot about how much he enjoyed prison life or how much at least it felt comfortable to him. Um, whereas Tiffany Haddish, like, I don't think there's a single scene where she is, like, wearing the same outfit from scene to scene. And it's not always like she's wearing some sort of high fashion. She goes from something more, some more high fashion outfits to something, you know, maybe more chic, you know, sometimes just, like, in street clothes or pajamas. And I think that... If we're if I'm trying to express why I think the light scene might be earned because I don't necessarily think definitively one way or the other I think it she's kind of in that scene taking Oscar Isaac's character into her world and that world is so much more bright and free than the world that Oscar has kind of put himself into yeah I so, mean despite like uh, Oscar Isaac like kind of being like fated to to fail um... There is still, like, the sense that there's, like, small, like, possibilities of hope kind of sprinkled in through the movie. And I think, like, that scene is a representative of that. Okay, it makes sense when you, when you say that you think that it represents her pull, pulling him into, you know, her much, her worldview. But I personally just didn't find their romance to be, like, I don't know, it, it didn't feel very organic. It felt like they were written to be together rather than they genuinely had some some sort of connection. I think a lot of that lies on the fact that I thought Tiffany Haddish's performance was just terrible. I actually really liked her performance, but but I would I would agree. Um, uh, it's not it's not very organic. It's definitely like yeah. written in. Um, sure. I mean, this movie does not pass the Bechdel test. If if that's at all a priority for you, we did it. We did. It. <laughs> that's 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 the most important thing about this movie. It's that's the, the only one. it's yeah. the only factor you should use when uh, talking about film. Yeah, I think I think um, this comes from. The fact that like Paul Schrader doesn't know how to let go of pickpocket, Brisson's pickpocket, because like it's pretty similar to in that movie. Like the uh, the the male and female lead in that movie don't exactly have organic chemistry. They're definitely like written to be together, and then just like at the end they kind of just like get together, and so that's like definitely carried over to this movie. And he's had this problem I think in um, several of his films in the past, including American Gigolo. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if I agree. Um, oh, sorry. You go, Joe. I've talked okay. a lot. Oh, well, I was just going to say, 
I'm not sure why Tiffany Haddish was in this film. I mean, if you look at her filmography before this, it's all, like, very lowbrow comedies, you know, just, like, silly shit. I don't know why she was cast to be in this, like, ostensibly really serious drama, you know? Um, Schrader actually has a history of casting comedians in, in dramatic roles. He actually really likes doing it. I was listening to a, um, a podcast, an interview with him um, earlier, and... Um, he did the same with like uh, Richard Pryor and um... hey, Richard Pryor's like maybe the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. Tiffany Haddish is Tiffany Haddish. There was there's another example, but I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. Damn. But anyway, um, he's done this like several times over his career. Um, the I think he says that uh, one of the reasons he does it is because, um, well, one it's a money thing, because uh, I mean his his films you know they don't they don't really get a lot of financing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, but he's not Marty paying for this one, so that's true, yeah. Um, but like, um, there's a lot of people paying for this one. Did you see the producer list? It's a, it's a way of like, um, enticing comedians to like, uh, to, 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 to show that they're not, um, you know, just comedians, and, and also like, it's yeah, a way of like saving money on the side. That doesn't mean she did a good job. Like, I'm sure there are comedians that would have done a, a better job. It still doesn't make sense why he cast her specifically when she was not the, a good choice for the role. There are other comedians that would I actually really liked her in the role. I think the problem was that the role itself just wasn't, like, written well. I don't, I don't know if anyone could have really done a great job in that role. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with Duran on that. And I, I, I think yeah. Tiffany Haddish is, is talented. She has not been in, you know... Uh, I, I think you could turn your nose up maybe at some of the movies she's done if they're not really your kind of thing. You know, I don't really watch a lot of her movies either, but, like, you, I, I agree with Deron. I don't I don't think there was a lot to make of this role. It was kind of just like, hey, Oscar Isaac, stop being a depressed loser. It's, yeah. it's underwritten for sure. I, I did feel like she brought some kind of charm to it, not, like... Like we like we're saying, it's it's underwritten no matter you know what way you slice it. But I think she she did have her her charm that she brought to the role. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, I, I think... Go ahead. Jim. When the female is is like like you know so underwritten, the the love story is not very believable. You just said you don't think anyone could really do well in that role because it's so underwritten. But it's how much interested to how you think it's still a great movie despite that. Um, I mean, you have to give me an hour for that. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta ask me more, right. more, more specific questions. We'll unravel that as we, as we go on, but right. you know, I um, I, I didn't, I didn't hate the movie. I thought it had strengths, but one comment I wanted to make about the ending is I found it fascinating, and Shelby and I agreed on this after we watched <laughs> it from. The scene where we first see him in prison reading, at the very end, we're talking about the last two minutes of the movie. Um, see him in prison reading. I'm like, okay, this is the ending. This is a decent ending. And then they're told he's told that he has a visitor. And I'm like, okay. And I thought that was going to be the ending. This is a little bit worse of an ending. It's a little corny, but okay, it's fine. And then we see a, that huge wide shot of him walking out of his cell. And I'm like, wait, oh no, this is a bad ending. And then... We see him sitting in the the cell, I mean, the, the room where he can talk to her, and I'm like, oh, God, this is a horrible ending. Why, why are they showing this much? 
And then they do the fucking E.T. fingers thing, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, every single cut, this ending is getting worse and worse. It started <laughs> with a good ending, and now, two minutes later, it is this horrible, corny ending. What is going on? I don't care if it's a reference to Pickpocket. Get over it, Mr. Schrader. It's a movie that came out 70 years ago, okay? It's... I don't care if you're referencing it, especially if Shelby has said this, if the reference, if you're just referencing it, referencing it because you like it, I don't, I don't care. Reference it if it actually adds something to the story. And in this case, I don't think it did. I don't think it added anything to the film to reference Pickpocket for the sake of it. Just because you're invoking Brisson doesn't mean you're Brisson. I mean, all that really makes you look like is a fanboy. Yeah, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. <laughs> um, although I, I the, the reason I like the ending a lot, um, especially the final shot, is because I think that it um, it provides like some element of hope. Um, whereas like the rest of the film, um, I mean, was was pretty like hopeless, especially like um, the events that occurred just before he went to jail. Um, so I was kind of concerned that it was gonna be leading down like this this hopeless path. But I don't know. There's there's something that really like. I can't exactly explain it. Um, it was like it was like a highly like emotional thing that happened to me when I when I saw that that scene. But they're, they're just like I don't know. There's something there that that I really enjoyed. Uh, the ending definitely didn't immediately like stick for me, and I'm I, I I don't think I would say anything like that. The ending was like my my favorite part of the movie by by a long shot. But I think in in sort of evaluating how it was trying to go with the you know, what the movie was trying to do with the themes of confinement and how that manifested with the, the change in the aspect ratio, like, right before the end of the movie. I, I think it was kind of important for the movie, if I'm, you know, uh, to try and show what you can do within that sense of confinement. That I don't... I think it's pointing to that you can't really escape that confinement, and that's why they're, you know, they're trying to reach out to each other but there's a glass window sort of separating them into two distinct planes or that or that like oscar isaac character is, is is putting himself in confinement you know it's not because of anything else um outside of his his control he's like because like this entire movie is kind of like um uh he, he's like torturing himself basically um like a lot of a lot of like other protagonists are like this um they engage like in a lot of like self-torture um and i think that like this this kind of like constant cycle and this like mundane cycle of gambling is both like a coping mechanism, um, but also a uh, a way of not really like engaging with um, his demons um, to kind of like shove them aside. So well, he, he's well, so he's trying end, to. Uh, okay. So sorry. So so at the end, it's like um, it's kind of saying that like uh, uh, his his confinement is completely like self-made yeah that's that's certainly interesting to think about and i i'm not sure if i i necessarily agree with something you said earlier about um oscars you know being the least forgivable of of paul trader's protagonists um i i think that's certainly a claim that you can make but I don't know if I feel like he's less um, uh, less forgivable or less empathetic than, say, you know, uh, it was Tyler, right, from from uh, Taxi Driver? Travis. Travis Bickle. Travis. Um, I meant least forgivable in that he's done, like, the most heinous acts compared oh, yeah, to, like, all the other ones. Um, so, like, 
and and well, if, that, I, I hmm. think that depends on how much stock you put into the you know we were just following orders thing i mean obviously that's like a you know that's an ongoing moral debate and it's it's complicated which is i think one of the reasons why the movie is so so rich but at, at least from my perspective you know travis was very much kind of pursuing violence you know of his own accord whereas like oscar isaac was kind of uh, william tell's character was kind of forced into that to some extent and he is he is culpable without a doubt um no, I think, I think the entire, like, point of, of that was, uh, like, there's a very important part where, um, uh, I think, I think Willem Dafoe says, like, you've, you've got, uh, you've got, like, what it takes, kid, or something like that, and, um, am I misremembering, or does, like, Oscar Isaac say, like, that's what, like, really fucked me up later in the movie? Like, um, it's... Well... I think I was a little, I was a little confused. That was one thing I was confused on, and maybe I was misremembering it too. But I felt like at one point, uh, you know, uh, Willem Dafoe's character said Oscar Isaac's character that I, you've got what it takes, and that you've got that creativity that he said you need for to do what they do. Um, but then at another point, I felt like he said that, uh, or Oscar said that Willoughby said that he didn't have what it takes. So I was a little confused there. He told him, uh, he puts him on the night shift in the, when they're introducing this, and they're, he's like, I think you've got what it takes. I'm going to put you on the night shift. And then he says, this job requires creativity. There's no manual. And then Oscar Isaac says, I did have what it takes, it turns out. And then later on, he says, he told me I had what it takes, but I lacked creativity. And then he essentially says he had to learn it. Exactly. Yeah. Creative and, and torture yeah yeah exactly so like i i think that he's um extremely culpable because of that like i, I don't think that like any amount of uh he was just like following orders could uh could excuse what he did i mean especially because like you see him like enjoying what he does um like in a, in a couple scenes yeah i mean he he takes pictures <laughs> the whole the whole reason he goes down is because he's like taking pictures with these like tortured yeah. people and he's having a great time doing it yeah, I I um, I thought that aspect of the film was was very interesting. I mean, the way that the, the those torture scenes were shown and filmed were were horrifying. Sent chills down my spine. Almost sent me into a panic attack with the sounds. Mm -hmm. Oh my god! And I thought it was really cool to get a sort of a traumatized um, Afghan war vet in a movie because I guess that war is still somewhat fresh and like pretty taboo to talk about and not taboo, but like, it's just, there, there aren't a whole lot of movies that, that talk about, um, look at characters that fought in that war yeah, outside of like American sniper that want to glorify it. So <laughs> I thought it was pretty, pretty neat, uh, to have that character Defoe played and kind of show the, the, the absolute brutality um, that once you dehumanize a group of people, you will literally treat them worse than dirt. Because um, I thought it was interesting when I think Defoe's like, we're saving American lives by doing this. And it's like, okay, once you say you're claiming that you're saving lives by doing what you do, you won't think twice when you know you take a fucking wrench to someone's mouth. So, mm -hmm. But it, it's also interesting because you can't go in the other direction either. You can't dehumanize the perpetrators and make them out into monsters, and that's one of the really interesting things about this movie. When he says to the little kid, 
um, not because he's not a little kid, but when he says to the kid, you know, it was, it could be me, it was your father, it could be you, it could be any man can get drunk on this power or whatever. So you, you can't dehumanize anybody. That's sort of the point of the yeah. character, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. 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 And that, that's, also- that's the point that I was trying to make earlier is that it's kind of infectious. That's like how he, you know, he, he didn't want to hear the heavy metal music anymore because it's just, it's, it's that that smell he was talking about you know the the testosterone every little ounce of that entire shit show of a place is just as infectious and everyone there is in some weird kind of survival mode and it's it's the i mean whatever psychology you want to put on it you know the the stanford prison experiment you know whatever like you know shit was fucked and he was definitely culpable but it is the idea that you know people can succumb to this kind of madness mm-hmm. power drunkenness yeah i think that I think... um the the way that uh the the scenes in abu Ghadi were, were shot too definitely like uh emphasize that so we, we mentioned a little bit how um joe joe you're the filmmaker here what what kind of what kind of a lens is, is what do you describe that effect how do you describe that effect Oh, I have no idea what that was, dude. That was <laughs> wild. Yeah. So there's like kind of like this this like fish it's, eye. It's effect. almost like the room is like unzipping itself. The the way that it moves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Red described it really well before the podcast podcast started as like a like a funhouse, well, like like kind of like a funhouse yeah. from hell. Like yeah, like a funhouse oh. mirror that kind of that that's what I really liked about it is that you know the substance was so horrifying and it, it looks horrifying to a certain extent but the 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 funhouse mirror or extreme fisheye almost makes it look weirdly silly and you don't want to think that you don't want to that's what makes it disturbing is it's like you don't want to ever consider that something this terrible could look funny it's kind of like like classic medieval depictions of hell in a way um at least yeah. like, that's the sense that I got. I can see that, like a, like a Hieronymus Bosch painting of hell. It's just so fucking hectic and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And but uh, at the same time, there's like this this element of like silliness or like clowniness to it, but it, yeah. it's like really twisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twisted silliness is perfect way to put it. And I love how that that recontextualizes his desire for you know normalcy or routine or staleness he doesn't want something that chaotic to ever happen to him again and at first you think it's you know it's just because you know he was a soldier so he's just kind of like used to routine um and that's just part of his life that's just how he was trained but then he was you know clearly trained in exactly the opposite way yeah uh, one thing I really like, actually, to take it back to the beginning, weirdly enough, I really liked the opening credits, how it was just, you know, pretty plain text above this extreme close-up of the felt gambling table with, like, all of the, you know, little stitches in a, in perfect lines, because I felt like that was a really nice sort of, you know, starting visual for this whole narrative about confinement and i like the underpinning logic of the whole movie how oscar spent a lot of time you know explaining what happened to him explaining how different games works explaining odds and um you know equations uh algorithms you know trying to make sense of the world and put it in this logical little box where he doesn't have to 
think about his problems. And I also like the sort of meta commentary that started from the beginning where he was like, uh, I was an American and as an American, I never thought I would become used to confinement. And I thought that right there just kind of opened up the whole movie to kind of being this exploration of sort of, you know, what is a 21st century, you know, straighter movie even look like, aside from the fact that, you know, uh, uh, first performed exists. Looks like, uh, yeah. like pickpocket, apparently. <laughs> apparently. Um, but, uh, going, oh. o- going off what you said really, really quick. Um, I, I really enjoyed how there's like this meticulous explanation about how like blackjack counting works at the beginning of the movie. I think later he does the same for like poker, but it like literally does not matter at all to understanding the movie. Like, I, I mean, I, I kind of like, I, I definitely like zoned out at that point. Cause I, I'm not like paying attention to like a movie trying to teach me something you know but it was definitely like a red herring um and it kind of gets you in that in that same mundane like cycle that that uh, oscar isaac's character goes through in the movie but but like right at the beginning yeah i don't think it is so much of of a red herring more is like illustrative of william tell's character Um, right you know because that that's that's who he is. The card counter is about a card counter, but it is not about him counting cards. Right, but the yeah, but the uh, the interesting thing is like when a when a movie like takes the time to explain to you something, I, I it kind of reminded me of like um, those annoying explanations that happen in, like Adam McKay movies, like in The Big Short where like Margaret oh. Robbie is like taking a bath and she like explains subprime uh, mortgages or whatever, and so like so like when a movie like uh, sits down and explains something to you you're supposed to pay attention. That's kind of like how we're taught as viewers to, to, to like to handle this stuff. But in this case, that explanation is completely like, it doesn't matter at all to, um, to like understanding or even like really thinking about the movie. It's just, it's purely like a, like a character character thing to kind of like get you in the mind of uh, William Tell. Um, we, we, we were talking about before, um, about, uh, right, you brought up the quote about, um, uh, Oscar Isaac feeling confined and how, like, he never was used to that because he's an American. And I, I kind of want to, like, explore, uh, this idea that I got a lot in the, in the, in the movie about, um, the, this kind of, like, collective, unforgivable actions, guilt, trauma of, um, what the United States did um, post 9-11. Mm-hmm. I think that the, there's a lot of interesting things this movie does about that. At least, I think on, like, some level, there is, um, like, a, this movie could be, like, considered to be, like, an allegory for for that kind of, like, guilt and trauma. But I, I do think, like, the movie is a little bit more than that, too. Um, Paul Schrader tends to use, like, um allegories like uh like climate change for example and first reformed and his movies to like um radicalize his protagonists um Mm -hmm. so yeah what what did you guys think about um this kind of question of like what what it means to be an american in the 21st century um i thought the um the kind of dynamic uh this created with um oscar isaac and um Ty Sheridan's character was um, very interesting, just because uh, Ty Sheridan's like this 
you know, it's this inherited experience that, like, he never actually went through. And he's, like, we kind of touched on this. He's so into it. Like, he is, he wants to listen to the heavy metal music. He wants to, uh, you know, enact all this torture. And, but compared to someone who has actually been through it and never wants to touch it again, there's this interesting dynamic at play where where it's like you know it's the the sins of our past and some people want to enact that sin but some people you know they they know what that sin entails and they don't want to touch it again i also think it's interesting i i don't think you can really talk about the context of what you know kind of paul trader is is trying to say uh you know about american society in general without talking about the, you know, the, the weird Ukrainian guy who shows up at every poker game with his little band of, of, of hype men saying, USA, yeah. USA, and they bring up that he's, you know, he's not even actually American, which, you know, it, I, you, you know, that's potentially problematic about what you're saying about immigrants, but, like, okay, for the sake of the story, you know, he's not a natural-born American, Oscar Isaac's, you know, character was a natural-born American and, you know, did the most typical of, or at least was in the role of the most typical, you know, patriot, you know, sort of archetype of being a soldier who served served his country, air quotes, you know. Um, and so it's, it's certainly interesting to try and unpack, you know, while you're watching the movie, because, like, kind of as you're watching it at first, you think it's kind of going in one direction, but then when you add the context of, you know, what Oscar Isaac did in the, the the torture prison, you know, that certainly sort of changes things. But I think in a lot of ways, it's still, you know, a lot of what happened in the war is, you know, certainly works as an allegorical context and is, you know, color for Oscar Isaac's character. But I was very interested in the way, like, if he is sort of supposed to be like the, the, the proto, you know, the stand-in for what Americans is, or the average American is like, you know, nowadays, you know, Obviously, they're not a card counter, but there's a lot of repetition. You know, he does. He never gets to win big. You know, he's always getting by on meager earnings, you know, going from city to city, never allowed to really, you know, connect himself to anyone. And he was ultimately the fall guys for, you know, more powerful people who, you know, uh, you never have to answer to everyone, anyone, you know, or not culpable for anything, you know, at least in the eyes of how, what sort of legal repercussions they face. They have money, they have, um, you know, they have alibis, you know, whatever. He doesn't get to have that. He just gets to win little. Otherwise, he's he's thrown out. So maybe, like, this kind of uh, disillusionment with the American dream, um, especially, like, after um, it became more obvious what the, uh, the evils of America did, you know, post 9-11. Yeah, but I think also kind of this idea, you know, when he's, like, uh, driving along, you know, going from casino to casino, and the the lights of, you know, the traffic lights or, you know, the stop, the the shop lights, you know, whatever, they all blur together to him with the casino life. So I think it's sort of implying that, you know, there's something about our, our modern sort of capitalist culture that is, is in some ways like what Oscar is experiencing in the casino, especially when you look at those shots at like the poker tournaments where like, you know, everyone just looks the same. You have these characters who are, yeah, distinct, they're individuals, 
but when you you know when you move the camera back the tables are all just squished together in this uniform sense no one looks happy everyone's you know hoping they can win big but they're just sitting at a table you know playing with these currencies that don't really mean anything as the film directly points out you know poker chips dollars grains of rice it's all kind of meaningless mm -hmm. um okay well um what did you guys think of the soundtrack i liked it i thought it was i i really liked it i liked how there's this kind of like muted screaming going on i think mm -hmm. that added a lot to the atmosphere helped kind of sell that uh you know you know the whole the whole thing about torture i thought that it was interesting that there was I noticed it. I didn't really like the music because it took me out of the movie because it started out as very generic, either sort of suspenseful or just sort of generic soundtrack music. And then halfway through the movie, I noticed the point where it switched to like whatever band that was that was doing all of those songs. And they really didn't fit what was going on. And at first I was like, well, that's cool. That's an interesting thing. But especially the last song, I really, I found it too jarring. I, I thought it was really strange. Yeah, it was kind of weird how Paul Schrader slammed in, like, sad indie music. But only halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Out of nowhere. That's true. Yeah. Actually, I didn't I didn't even notice that the, the sad indie music occurred, like, halfway. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't know if it was halfway, but I, was, I noticed when it happened. Um, speaking of uh, meaningless references, um, something something funny I, I recently discovered. the um, So apparently the, the guy who did the soundtrack was the son of the guy who composed Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper. Um, oh. Yeah, I don't... I, and also, apparently, um, another thing I, I saw was uh, there's, a, there's a tattoo on Oscar Isaac's back, which is apparently, like, lyrics from a song in Light Sleeper. So, I, I, I don't know, like, what, what, what's going on there. there. There's, like, a there seems to be, like, a lot of references, like, not only to, of course, like, Brisson and other, like, Transcendent, transcendental style filmmakers, at least from uh, what Paul Schrader describes as transcendental, um, but also like there's there's a lot of like references to his own work. So it's almost like, I, I mean, obviously like he's aware that you know he's doing the same character over and over and over again. But I guess this is the this is the first time where it felt like um, the movie itself was aware of it too. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, one of the, the, the feelings I, I walked away from the movie with was that, you know, this is this was certainly made by the guy who made the taxi driver. Just he's had, you know, four and a half decades to mature. There are a lot of creatorisms in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean I necessarily call him a, a, a mature filmmaker, you know, with no caveats to that. But certainly, you know, compared to what the the writing was in taxi driver which is still great it just gets you get the sense that you know those sensibilities have kind of been refined for better or for worse i was listening to an interview with him and <laughs> he said um when I, when i wrote taxi driver the word incel didn't exist <laughs> uh that's funny oh my god uh what did what did you think of the um like I was mentioning, Schraderisms, the the kind of uh, voiceover letter writing, because that happens in Card Counter and 
taxi driver mm -hmm. and uh, first reformed. I don't know why I said card counter. <laughs> um, uh, Light sleeper too, and also affliction. Yeah, I got to assume. Yeah, that. and I think <laughs> that I multiple think, movies do this. I I don't remember if there's writing in American Gigolo, but there's definitely a narration. Um, I uh, oh. I mean yeah I don't know. Go ahead, Joe. Oh um. Yeah, I Shelby actually had some. Didn't you have to say something about the narration? Like, well, I thought it was strange because they only used it like a handful of times, and it was like not very much. It was. It didn't seem necessary when they used it. Like when he's in the car and he's like, "My God, this guy's a prick." Obviously, he's being a prick. Obviously, we know. So I just thought it was used really oddly. I'm not bothered by it in general, but I was like, "Why here?" <laughs> I think that he's um, another reference. I think that he's trying to do the uh, the Brisson thing, where um, so Brisson like re repeats a lot of information in his movies. Like so, so for example, like he'll um, he'll he'll like show somebody writing down like a sentence, like I walked into the bank, and then like he'll have them narrate that sentence, and then the next shot will be them walking into the bank, and at least like uh, they, from like the Paul Schrader analysis that that I read about that scene, um, he said he said that he does this to like make uh the audience kind of like aware that they're watching a movie to like cause some kind of like introspection so i don't know maybe maybe like he's trying to do something there maybe just another like useless reference uh, i'm not i'm not really sure he didn't really do that it wasn't the same thing was it he wasn't saying i'm getting in the car he was making a comment and it, it was especially strange with a character that doesn't speak much where you're gleaning what he's thinking and feeling from his face and body language mm -hmm. um that felt yeah so that was odd i think um, do you guys think that the uh, the narration ever like made you more aware of uh, like what's going on in, in Oscar Isaac's head? I think so. I think I I think more the the delivery than than what he was saying. Kind of what you pointed to earlier, where it's like you don't really have to you know listen to the substance of you know him explaining card games. It's more just that he he in his head almost feels the need to explain this whether it's to himself whether it's to the audience you know whether he he's got to go through this logic and i mean i suppose maybe you could you know say it's just kind of a traitorism and because it's a traitorism perhaps that sort of dilutes dilutes what kind of you know unique purpose it could bring to this movie specifically um but I certainly think the tone of the delivery here, like, was really insightful into, and worked well with the themes of the movie. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, um, I think it definitely, like, does something than just reference. Although, I'm not gonna lie, like, there are a lot of, like, useless references in the movie, so... <laughs> I found the letter writing interesting because I, I feel like it, um, from every Schrader movie that I've seen, it kind of changes depending on the character. Like, um, in this movie, it was very, like, you know, Oscar Isaac is a very confined person. He's in control of his emotions. Travis Bickle's letters are much more chaotic and disorganized. Um, and also contradictory. Yeah. And, uh... I'm forgetting the Ethan Hawke's character's name. Um, Reverend Toller. Yeah, his his are are very like uh, 
like pessimistic by the end uh they're they're very like they tell you a lot about who the characters are and um kind of like how their mind works and i think that's it's a very useful gimmick for schrader i'd say to to kind of explain where a character's at yeah yeah i, I agree um he says that like this comes from the tradition of like um existentialist writing um like 19th early 20th century um novels that kind of thing um and of course like you know he got this from Brisson, <laughs> like uh diary of a country priest um and uh pickpocket you know have characters like this too yeah um so the uh the the thing that interested me most about the movie is um kind of like what it what, what it's what it's trying to do with the, these ideas of like guilt and redemption um of course like these ideas are like classic to schrader classic to brisson um all the way like down since like taxi driver um he's been dealing with, with these ideas but um i think that this movie has a little bit of a different approach to it because um, we see like how um in a way like isaac is trying to uh find a redemption through a different character um you know someone that's not himself ty sheridan's character so what do you guys, what do you guys think about that guilt and redemption in this movie certainly prominent i feel like um certainly prominent i don't know what the hell i'm saying um it's the main theme uh i it's it's just like a lot to to tackle with uh just because it's you have and that's what i was talking about this dynamic between him and ty sheridan where it's like he's he's doing a lot of this for him and there's this kind of like guilt that you know, him and his father were doing this together and that he needs to kind of pay this forward somehow in some sense. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just, like, it's a lot of wrestling with that feeling, and it just, I think the movie does a really great job with, um, you know, spending time on that and making sure that, like, Ty Sheridan's completely oblivious to, like, what he is doing with, you know, why he's doing this and the guilt he feels kind of towards him in a way. Meanwhile, he is struggling. And it's, I don't know, does, does anybody else want to take over? Um, well, I think it's certainly interesting, kind of, the ideas of, you know, um like like you almost get the sense that it's sort of like a he's like a sort of twisted celebrity for uh ty sheridan's character kirk with a c um that you know he knows him before he's even met him you know he's he has an idea of who william tell is supposed to be you know he knows what he looks like and you know he comes in and he's like you're gonna help me like in a weird way in a weird way it's almost like um syndrome and uh, mr incredible from the incredibles like he comes in and he's like you can help me do what i want right and then he's like no please stop just be a normal kid don't don't do what i do it's not good for you and then he's like I, i'm gonna go do it anyways um and you, you get the idea that he you know very much kind of 
you know, Oscar is, is very much trying to, you know, in, in some ways, you know, he's trying to lead him off the path of, you know, torture and violence. He's trying to show him, you know, what he can do with his life. But, you know, it just keeps, seems like that's all Ty Sheridan is, is, is looking for. You know, I Sheridan's he, very much like idolizing a guilty conscience. Yeah, like mm -hmm. he when when he goes down even to like try and torture, you know, uh, or or threatens to torture Ty Sheridan's character, you know, so that he can scare him straight, you know, Ty Sheridan seems almost weirdly excited by it. He's and certainly on. that brings up some like some classic you know interpretations of cinema and spectatorship voyeurism all that you know if you, if you want to get into all that um yeah uh g going off that um so i think that that oscar isaac is looking for redemption through titaridon's character so he views himself as a lost cause he doesn't think that there's anything that he can do to really redeem himself and on on a certain on some level, I think that he almost feels like he's fated to um, to like clash with uh, Willem Dafoe's character or um, to kind of like explode in violence at some time. So so throughout the whole movie, through like his cycles of gambling, um, it is like a distraction, and he's kind of put like in this limbo state, almost like awaiting the day before he snaps. But then he sees uh, Ty Sheridan's character, and like. Um, Ty Sheridan also, like, um, his whole thing is that, like, uh, his mom ran out on him, and um, he kind of, he's, like, never really forgiven her for that. So, like, Oscar Isaac kind of, like, I, I guess, like, thinks in a way that, um, okay, um, I can't be redeemed. Um, there's no hope for me, but maybe there's some hope for this guy. So, like, if I if I can, I can help like fix the situation, yeah. If I if I can like help, yeah, fix this, then maybe like my life is worth something. Maybe like there's some kind of redemption in that. But of course, like you know, this is a a terrible terrible thing to do because not only are, is he denying like his own responsibility um, in a way, but uh, to, to like himself to um uh, to redeem himself. Um, but also like you you can't like redeem somebody else's sins. So of course, like this, is, it doesn't work out, and of course, like Ty Sheridan's character gets killed. Um, so I don't know. I think I thought that was that was really interesting. Yeah, a lot to tackle. I mean, the the whole movie just like it just gets you thinking. I th I think that's one of the things I admire most about it. Like it's mm -hmm. clear what it's trying to say, but it it just makes you dwindle on those feelings a lot and. I, I appreciated it for that. I also think that um, it's very interesting that it was released on uh, the day before 9-11. I don't think that's a coincidence, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, so as as, um, as someone uh, from, like, Afghan descent, my, both my parents are Afghan, um, I've, been, I've been faced with a lot of uh, white guilt in the, uh, in the last, like, few weeks due to, um, you know, the complete... Um, fuck up of the u.s government to what they did to afghanistan and, and this pullout and, and the disaster that that's been like um so so in a way I, I definitely like relate to this film on a personal level and that like um i almost kind of interpreted um oscar isaac's desire to to help um ty sheridan as this kind of like 
white guilt thing that um that the united states is trying to like like a lot of like u.s citizens that you know don't fully know what's going on try, trying to help like the Afghans while like not really knowing the situation due to like a sense of white guilt because also like oscar Isaac's character um i think also feels guilty for um ty sheridan uh and the fact that like ty sheridan's dad killed himself because he because like on on some level i think that he he, he thinks that like he could have done something about that so i thought i thought that was really interesting and makes like the film very very relevant to today All right. Well, um, is there uh, any other comments that, that we'd like to add? I think uh, I'm good. Yeah, I think I've... Uh... Joe, Shelby? Yeah, I think, think y'all covered it. All right. Well, um, let's move on to the, the last part of uh, the podcast. We, we will talk about the last few movies we've seen. Um What's a recommended it to, to five, I believe. Yeah, uh, around that, whatever. Um, what do we recommend? What we don't recommend? Uh, Joe, do you want to go first? Then we'll we'll go to Shelby, then then Rhett, then Nick, from there. Can I can I go last? Because uh, I'm uh, kind of I need to grab something real quick. Yeah, no problem. Um, Shelby, do you want to go or do you want to pass it down? I'm passing it down because Joe has the list of movies. Rhett, do you want to go? Sure, I can go. Um, so I've still been on my my. I, I I can't really call it a Kurosawa binge, but I've been working my way through his filmography, uh, most recently with the Lower Depths, which I thought was kind of uh, disappointing. But Throne of Blood, which was absolutely amazing. I love the you know sort of Kabuki esque expressionist style, and Macbeth is my favorite Shakespearean tragedy. So that was just a big treat. Uh, Nick and I watched Pink Flamingos together before it left Criterion Channel. Uh, yeah, that was masterpiece. That was an experience. Um, I can, I can, yeah. I mean, I liked it. I. Um, Man, you think you've seen it all, and then you see Pink Flamingos. I was not ready for that movie. I, th I definitely thought I would be, but I, I was not. I was not yeah, ready. no, I, I don't <laughs> think I was quite ready for that. I either. Um, I, I watched. Zabriskie Point, Antonioni's uh, 1970 film uh, in my film theory class. What do you uh, think about that one? I want to check that one out soon. Was not a fan, honestly, but I think I would have been a big fan had I been in college or high school, like in the 60s or 70s. I probably would have been like, this is it, man. This is exactly <laughs> what it's all about, man. This is, you know, the, the, the government man and, and uh, capitalism man, but like, I, I felt like that's kind of what it was it was just capitalism bad let's go fuck in the desert um that sounds you sick, know though. It, i mean a little bit a little <laughs> bit like and the ending was really good you should definitely watch it for the ending but i had a lot of problems with it especially weirdly and it, again like the alternate timeline 60s and 70s me would probably kill me for saying this but i really didn't like the pink floyd soundtrack because it made it hard to to take nuance from the film because I felt like if there was any sort of like nuanced criticism of this sort of, you know, mindset of like these characters kind of being very self-involved and thinking that they can just run away to the desert, you know, uh, to escape capitalism or to fight back, whatever, you know, you know, any kind of critique of that very sort of naive mindset, you know, isn't really 
at least I don't feel like I can interpret that when the the Pink Floyd soundtrack just kind of seems to be glorifying that. Um, Was like I, the the Pink Floyd soundtrack like didactic? I I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not sure how if I feel it, it it's didactic or not. I feel like it just really. It, I don't know. I felt like it excluded me from the film rather than including me. Um, it, it's not a bad film. If, if if you like it, I I can see why people would like it, but I was just very much not into it. Um, but I was very into... I also watched, and this uh, this will be the last one I bring up, or uh, I'll bring up two because it's kind of quick. Um, I, I watched Jeanette, finally. Uh, I really liked that one. I'm not into musicals, but it's probably the best musical I've ever watched. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I mean, you, you think it's, you think it's something, but you can never quite nail it down. And, and it's just very interesting to look at it. I probably won't watch it again, but I'm very glad I watched it. And, uh, this is a little bit of a while ago, but I watched and loved the suicide squad. I'm surprised Nick and I never did a podcast about that one, but that one was just tons of fun. I'm very still willing to do fun. one. Uh, we- yeah, honestly, it might be a little late, but I we can down. we can do one on Friday because it comes out on uh, home release. Oh, okay. That that can be the excuse. All right. <laughs> um. Yeah, Annette is so good. Have you seen any other uh, Leo's Carax movies? Uh, no, I have not. But I've heard about Holy Motors. I, I will probably check it out. But I have a long list of of stuff that I want to check out. Still got to get through Kurosawa's filmography, and then I'm going to try to move on to Fellini's after that. He yeah. only has like three movies, right? Correct. I think he has six features. Um, yeah, definitely check out Holy Motors. I also really like uh, Lovers on the Bridge. Um, mm. Yeah, um, I've seen I think most of his movies. I, I still really want to see uh, Pola X. That looks really good. Yeah, uh, Nick. Um, yeah, man. I uh, I watch movies. Um, <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, you ever heard of this movie, The Card Counter? No. I just saw that. Uh, <laughs> I watched The Fugitive recently. I, I really like The Fugitive. Oh, yeah, that's good. I don't think I've seen that. I, I think didn't I, kill my wife. I think I saw that on cable when I was like 13, but I haven't seen it since. Yeah, Who's the director I, for that one? It's... Steven Spielberg. Oh. Andrew Davis. Uh-huh. I don't know who this guy is. <gasps> he directed Holes. No wonder this guy's cracked. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Holes is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, so I watched The Fugitive. Uh, you know, good movie. Good Harrison Ford, Where's My Wife movie. Um, if you're if you're into those. Um, watched Lawrence of Arabia at uh, the AFI. Uh, hell with, yeah. With my dear friend, Duran Aziz. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am so glad that I waited to see that in theaters. Oh yeah, it's definitely not a movie you want to see at home. Um, yeah, man, it you know stunning cinematography. No CGI. Oh, we did it. No CGI. How uh, how do they how did they do it? How do they not? How do they resist did, the temptation to not use computers they, back then? How? This how is an actual. Happen? This is an actual frame from a million dollar blockbuster. Did every single time I see like an old movie in theaters, and then there's like an old person there, they're like, "There's no CGI in this movie. This is a good movie. It's got white people in it." Well, that's I, I Omar. That last point. That's Omar. It, it's <laughs> got white. It's got white people playing brown people, Marty. This is exactly how it was meant to be. Exactly. Um. The, the um. The I think Obi Wan. Obi Wan's a, a a prince, dude. 
He's an Arabian prince. He's great, dude. I mean, excuse it, me, excuse me. He's a king. If there was um, any actor that I want to appropriate my culture, I'm definitely down for uh, Alec Guinness doing that. <laughs> um, oh my god, is a king. The movie, uh, the movie is amazing, masterpiece. But also, I think like the best part of it was just like all the old people talk. You know? Oh um, yeah. Was so. And funny. all the all the all the just the people who just weren't aware of their surroundings watching yeah. that film. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but, uh, if you want to see Lawrence of Arabia, uh, and you're in a big city, I'll, I'll do that caveat, because otherwise you might be waiting for years. Go see it in a theater. Okay, wait. elitist. Like, it's, it is, it, no, it's worth it. It's worth it to wait to see that in, on the b biggest screen you possibly can. So, Pink Flamingos, saw that, um, I was that friend who'd never seen a weird art house movie during that film the entire time. I was like, what is happening? what is going on um great movie visionary john waters is a god he's a legend i said i said it's if joe Dorowski directed an episode of it's always sunny in philadelphia um yeah <laughs> maybe uh i saw shang chi um you know marvel movie it exists it's another one of those that's really all i have to say it's a good movie i like it but you know at this point, it just does feel like, you know, it's another one of those. Um, I also saw Transformers, which I didn't want to log because I don't want to... I didn't want to embarrass myself. You're a pussy. <laughs> um, man, I don't even know what to say about Transformers. It's, um, it's not good. I really want to see Pain and Gain. I'm, I'm, buying, yeah, I'm buying the fact we were... that, uh, that Michael Bay is an auteur. Oh, I watched Transformers on 9-11. <laughs> that's, that's the perfect 9-11 movie. clarify that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so uh, Suicide Squad is... It became maybe one of my favorite movies, so we'll be talking about that on... Sometime on Friday? Saturday? Uh, Friday works for me, I think. I didn't, I'm going to try to see Prisoners of the Ghostland this weekend, but Friday should be fine. Sweet. All right. Well, you'll hear more of my thoughts on uh, on Friday then. Um, I th think that's all I want to mention. Um, Joe Shelby. Yeah. So my last five movies besides the card counter. I let's go. So on a couple days ago, we caught a screening of Fallen Angels, the Wong Kar Wai. Um, Hell yeah. I mean, it's it's not it's not as we both agreed it's not as good as Chunking Express, but it's still aesthetically it's a fucking experience. I mean, it's very fun. Uh, the music, the way the music clashes with the images, he's got such a singular way of uh, of photographing Hong Kong and all the sleazy faces, beautiful faces. Everyone in his movies is hot. I love the, uh, um, the lenses in that movie. Yeah, yeah, slunking through Hong Kong. It's a very like vibey movie in that way and i love the like pounding uh music that will play that like when um certain characters are introduced it's just it's just kicks ass if you like chunking express if you like Wong car you gotta see that um we saw polyester the john waters movie that was also screening so fucking fun so funny one of the <laughs> funniest movies i've seen in time divine's awesome and it actually i've always liked john waters a lot 
especially as a person. I mean, I saw him do stand up a couple of years ago. He was really funny. Oh, but, so um, great. I'm so jealous. I uh, I've actually recently got into his books, and he's got such a enjoyable, funny voice that I just love reading. It's just a pleasure. He's such a funny man, and which uh, which more... books would you would you recommend by him? Uh, so I've, I've read this book, not by him, but about him, called John Waters' FAQ. I've been going through that by Dale Sherman, I believe. But I'm currently reading his book, um, what's it called? Crackpot. And that is great. And um, it's funny right off the bat. He's very proud of being from Baltimore, too. So if you're from Maryland, <laughs> you know, he. I'm pretty sure Baltimore is still his uh, permanent residence. I mean, he opens up Crackpot talking about how I'll never want to live in one of the two cities in America that the entertainment industry considers a real city, being New York and L.A., and that he <laughs> loves Baltimore. Actually, um, um, when I was in when I was in Baltimore, I went to this um, this record store that was like right next to this this bookstore, and that that bookstore is where like all of John Waters' fan mail is sent to, apparently. Oh, that's awesome! So um, at some point, I guess we'll, we'll have to break into his house together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. We'll break into his house and just sleep on his couch. If we sleaze around the museums him. long enough, I'm sure we'll we'll bump into John. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And his pencil you know, thin mustache. Yeah, I was reading about how he has not trimmed that since like the '60s, and yeah, at this point, he's afraid to ever do it because he thinks there's just gonna be like a scar there from <laughs> like the flesh under that mustache has not seen the fucking sun in like 50 years. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, and then I caught uh, the the Lubitsch movie, The Shop Around the Corner. I watched that on the, oh, I think HBO Max. It's really charming, really, like, uh, cute 30s, oh, sorry, um, early 40s comedy. Uh, Lubitsch is great. You know, there's... Um, to, to be or not to be and uh is another good one by him they're just you know they just make you feel good and warm inside mm-hmm. um i gotta watch more hearts and hearts and minds great vietnam documentary came out in the 70s by peter davis uh doesn't didn't really teach me anything i didn't know but it's always good every once in a while to rehammer home the fact that we really went into southeast asia and did that mm-hmm. um and yeah, that's my recent watch list. Oh, I also watched a a um, uh, found footage Japanese horror movie, Noroi the Curse, uh, by Koji Shirashi, and I found it a little bit disappointing. Um, it wasn't bad, but I had the mistake of having high expectations going into a found footage horror movie because um, <laughs> I heard it was very good, and. Um, it kind of it, it, it plays like a mockumentary almost like the film pretends to be like the pieced together documentary by a filmmaker who attempted to make a documentary about um, this cursed Japanese town and you see like you know there's creepy kids and there's tortured women but really it's 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 kind of a snooze fest until the ending which is pretty fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all right. If you really like found footage, if you're really looking for a, a horror movie, I, I guess watch it, but it's, it's nothing I would super recommend. Gotcha. 
one film that I am interested in seeing, though, uh, that is another J-horror, is Pulse by Kurosawa. Not Akira Kurosawa, but I think it's I think it's by the, um, the guy Kurosawa. who made Cure. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Have good. Have you seen Pulse? Yeah, that's one of my favorite yeah. uh, horror movies. Actually, I... Um... I, I've been kind of like trying to go through his movies more recently because um, I've been kind of like holding off on that. But yeah, definitely recommend Pulse. I'd also definitely recommend um, Retribution, which is also incredible. It's another it's a it's another J horror. It, it's kind of like a like a riff on Cure, I would say, although um, definitely like a different angle there. And also um, Tokyo Sonata is another masterpiece by him. Yeah, Nick, you get a dollar. <laughs> I uh, my my connection dropped out for a second, so I just barely got the end of that sentence. Did he, did he say masterpiece? He did say masterpiece. <laughs> uh, we're on like forty dollars now, boys. Dude, no, I just gotta stop watching good movies. I can't. I gotta. Stop. I guess so. Um, good movies aren't allowed. Only Marvel movies. Yes, <laughs> I finally won. No, that'd be <laughs> awful, and I'd kill myself. Um, Shelby, any uh, any movies that you saw recently? Anything you'd like to add? She ran out to the post office. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Shelby. Um, but, um, <laughs> all right. So what I saw recently, um, so I did a, I did have a bit of a, like Paul Schrader binge and the preparation to card counter. Um, pretty, pretty good overall. The only like bad movie I'd say is cat people, but out of those, I would recommend, um, affliction. Um, that's really good. I, I think I talked a little bit about it on the group chat, but, um, it's definitely another taxi driver riff. Um, so don't don't go in expecting uh, anything new. But it's uh, has a great performance by um, Nick Nolte and um, some really interesting um, like cinematography choices. And he uses like a, like a few different mediums in that. So I think like so some of it's like filmed on like VHS, some of it's filmed in uh, on film. Um, and there's like like different filters he uses that are that are pretty interesting. But um, yeah, it's really good. It's like a really great. I think it's like one of the the better films I've seen on um, like childhood trauma and like how that affects um, uh, people as they get older and this kind of like cycle of abuse between um, like father son, etc. Um, so that was really good. Um, I also saw um, uh, "Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song" by the the legend himself, um, Martin Melvin Van Peebles. Uh, that was that was fantastic. I've been trying to get more into like black exploitation lately, um, and this one I kind of like went in knew, knowing nothing, and it just was insane. Like a super like experimental, just wacky film um, about uh, this uh, this male prostitute on the run for the cop from the cops. Um, great film. You see a lot of cops get shot. It's it's beautiful. I love that shit. Yeah, that sounds big. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Um, I also saw um, Blissfully Yours, which is um, an Apichitpong Wurisithical movie. Um, I definitely want to like catch up on the rest of his stuff before um, Memoria comes out, whatever the hell that's going to be. But um, yeah, that was that was really good. Um, I I really like his films. I, this one um, was pretty pretty like low key and. Um, I think it has like the best title drop I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> so like it happens like halfway in the movie and suddenly like there's this like burst of, of music. It's like beautiful burst of music. Um, when like in the previous like 45 minutes, um, there was like no like music whatsoever. 
and then like the, the credits start rolling and it's like it's at this like um pivotal moment in the movie because the movie ha has like a very very like loose narrative um there isn't really much going on but basically it's about um these two people in, in thailand who um uh like eventually like become lovers but like the first like half of the movie just like random parts of their life is like kind of like disconnected but eventually like um once they go off in this little like vacation to each other like that that's when like the uh the the title beautiful title sequence happens so yeah great really good really good movie uh, definitely would recommend that and uh lastly i forgot to mention um movie i saw early, earlier this month is um goodbye dragon inn which is so good probably my favorite simon lang if not definitely like up there um i think i think he's like uh one of the greatest contemporary filmmakers and th this was a really really interesting one so like another example of not really having a narrative very very loose narrative this is basically just like a um it's about a bunch of people watching this movie called dragon Inn, which is a um a uh a taiwanese kung fu movie from like the um uh martial arts movie from like the uh 60s i think which i still haven't seen um but it's it's literally just about people watching this movie in a theater and it's amazing it, it captures like the uh the, this feeling of um being in this like strange like dark room with a bunch of like random strangers like so well and there's like something really like magical about it um big fan of that one that sounds really cool yeah, I definitely would check that out. Um, definitely check out like some other Simon Lang stuff too, and definitely like um, trying to go through that. But yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. All right, um, shall we wrap things up? We shall. Sure. All right. Well, Joe, Shelby, Rhett, thank you for being our, our guests. Nick, thank you oh. for for being my co-host. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, if you want more content by yours truly, go to uh, uh, nick.nimkoff.com, and it'll link you right to my blog where you can uh, read more reviews. Do that. And go to uh, duranaziz.wordpress.com to read more of my bullshit. All right. Thank you very much. Goodbye.